can have thoughts about just about anything, in fact. We might be sitting on the couch, eating cashews, reading the newspaper, and then, poof, the memory of our birthday party when we turn seven years old glides into our minds. Or maybe it's not our birthday party, which we remember, but rather that of our best friend. But in his case, he was turning six years old, not seven. Naturally, we do not remember the entire party, just some fleeting image or two of it. Were there caches at the party? Did some word of the newspaper article trigger an association with the word we heard at the party all of those many years ago? The key word here is, I think, random. Are thoughts, indeed, random? Or can we trace them back to some logical cause? With dreams, the question of randomness becomes even more pressing, or perhaps less so, I'm not really sure. Because our waking mind is not so much different than our dreaming mind as we like to believe. But leaving that aside, we can all certainly agree that sometimes we have dreams, and we simply have not a clue where the content originated from. Joseph, however, thought differently. Joseph insisted, again and again, that dreams come from God. Today, we might simply dismiss Joseph's theory of dreams as the musings of a religious nut. But if, instead, a neuroscientist were to opine that dreams are fully and totally random, well, that is an idea we could get behind. Yet, as I argued way back in episode 10 of The Shrift, God and randomness may not be opposites so much as partners or even twins. The random thought we have which reminds us where we left our keys. In the secular world, we might say that we had a lucky thought. A religious person, by contrast, would exclaim, Baruch Hashem, and thank God for allowing him or her to remember where those goddamn keys were. Is there a difference between God and randomness, between God and luck? For if we cannot trace the source of this lucky, most random, and yet most helpful of thoughts, to whom do we give the credit for it? God? Fate? Luck? Randomness? Another way of conceiving of this quandary is to picture a tennis ball being hit back and forth over a net. Suddenly, the ball hits the top of the net and hangs in the air for a moment. For that briefest of moments, the tennis ball seems to be capable of falling on either side of the tennis court. This is the moment of what we call luck, or is it? Perhaps all along the tennis ball knew, or rather the laws of physics knew, on which side of the court the ball would land. To help us think more clearly about these questions, Nate Klett will be joining us on The Shrift. Not only does Nate have his PhD in neuroscience, but he also has an impressive background in philosophy. I know this because he and I went to high school together and spent many evenings walking the streets of Philadelphia, or rather its suburbs, and debating topics such as free will, the existence of God, moral relativism, and how to best hide those beer bottles from our parents. And, as luck would have it, we had the chance to take up the conversation again, many years later, in a chateau in the south of France, shortly following Nate's wedding. Nate, welcome.
welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And Nate, maybe you just had to start with a boring kind of intro question. Just say a bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, so I did my PhD in neuroscience and now I'm on a second postdoc in neuroscience um, now at Leiden University in the Netherlands. And um, yeah, on the whole spectrum of neuroscience, I am, you know, on one side of the spectrum is genes and molecules and proteins, the, the molecular side. And then on the other extreme is psychology and cognitive science and things like this. Um, I'm definitely much more on the small scale, the cellular side. So a question such as where thoughts come from is not my expertise. So I'll just clarify that from the outset, but hopefully maybe I can say something interesting. Great. <laughs> um, I'm just curious, like, uh, well, is this something that a neuroscientist would know about or is there a different field where they would know more about where thoughts come from? Or are, you, are we in the, right, uh, in the right realm, so to speak, of science? Mm. Well, I guess I would say that, you know, this is a question that has uh, been interesting people and philosophers for a couple hundred years, if not even from the beginning. Uh, and yeah, as you probably know, at some point, natural scientists were the same as philosophers. They were one and the same. Uh, yeah, but obviously it's a very difficult question and, you know, there's not that much known now. I would say I don't think there's any definitive answer to where thoughts come from, but uh, yeah, I think there's many. I think neuroscientists would have theories. I think they, especially more the the, the neuropsychologists and the people on the that side of the spectrum would have some theories. But I think at this point, it's mostly theories. I mean, well, because um, my understanding of neuroscience is like. You know, there were philosophers talking about the philosophy of mind for hundreds, if not thousands of years, but it wasn't really scientific. It was more just kind of based on life experience, but there was no data or kind of no biological type of evidence. And I think you kind of just said neuroscience sort of combines psychology and science or mm. kind of hard science. Mm. And I would say, at least my understanding is that the field of neuroscience maybe was created to give more kind of more evidence and more legitimacy to these like ancient philosophical questions. Would you agree with that or am I off? What's the question? Um, it gives more legitimacy to the theories. Like the inspiration behind neuroscience is to make philosophy more scientific in terms of philosophy of the philosophy of the mind more scientific yeah i guess so yeah <clears throat> maybe you could say a little bit okay something that comes to mind is you know there is yeah i mean oftentimes science is a process of taking the idea first the hypothesis and then trying to find proof of it and i mean we all sort of know intuitively that maybe the thought precedes the action and I think that at least has been shown, you know, like 
I think they've done single cell recordings in monkeys where they can they train a monkey to do a task and before the motor neurons fire they can see the 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 the, the execution plan or the the eye movement plan they can see those neurons fire before the motion so we know that you know there's some correlation to that thought we know that there's something we can see that correlates with that thought or is that thought perhaps mm. but uh where it comes from, I mean, that's a more complex thing because if the animal wants to, first it wants to move, so where does it get that desire? That could be other inputs coming in, like it wants some juice, it wants the reward, it's been trained, it wants to be a good animal. Um, all of those inputs are then maybe coming to the idea to, that it wants to do it, and then there's the actual motor command that will make it move its arm or move its eye. So I there's see. a whole string there, but I'm still not sure if that really answers. I guess maybe you could, I guess what I'm, I hope I'm not pushing you to an answer. Definitely don't let me do that. Not that you would, but um, I'm just thinking about like Freud, for example, was a psychologist, uh, obviously. And I think, you know, I don't think he could have ever imagined, I think he would have been enthralled to take like psychology and place it in this very scientific sphere of neuroscience mm. um right i mean all of what freud did was completely theory there isn't really any uh no empirical uh data collection or surveying or i mean he saw some patterns when he talked to people but there was certainly no uh no uh, statistics to anything he did so like i remember in high school um we loved philosophy and kind of psychology as well, talking about it. As I recall, you were steered toward neuroscience because you wanted, you didn't want it to just be kind of speculation. You wanted to legitimize it with your interest in, in the mind with data and science. Can you talk a little bit about like what got you into neuroscience or why you chose neuroscience and not philosophy or psychology? Yeah, I mean, I guess at the time, just the idea of that something as complex as human emotions can be uh, registered in the form of neurotransmitters and chemicals and little signals going around in the brain, like just how something so complex as human emotion can manifest in those small ways, that fascinated me. Um, I went on to go less from that direction, maybe not pursuing my heart, but I also felt that to get at those higher level questions, we have to start with the bottom. If we don't know how the bricks and the cement work, then we can't understand you know, the building for its complete form. And so, yeah, for, for, for whatever reasons, uh, some of them are, were out of my control and some of them were in my control, but I went more towards the cellular molecular side. But uh, the emotions is still, of course, I mean, that's our life, that's our experience, uh, that's how we live in the world. You are listening to The Shrift, Interview 10 with Nate Klepp, neuroscientist at Leiden University. Bye, Gosh.
I have two questions and then we'll get more into the into the discussion. But I remember there might have been a was there a religious element at all why you got into neuroscience? Because the brain is obviously well, it is a mystery and was there any kind of a sense in which you you found the brain as maybe a pathway to discovering the creator of the universe or mm. any kind of religious impulse? I mean, I think that's always there. I think that uh, I personally believe that I personally believe that the the human has some unique qualities that separates us from animals, and to me, that's the best proof of God that we have things like language and music and these sorts of things that I believe separate us from the animals. And the third thing of that may be consciousness, maybe where consciousness and therefore thoughts, the origination. Um, you know, I think most neuroscientists in general would be um, completely of the idea that uh, the animal is a, a um, I think most neuroscientists would would hold that the animal is a machine. You know, they hold to this materialist worldview, materialism being the philosophy that all things, including consciousness, um, can be registered in a very, they have a physical explanation based on the laws of physics. And, you know, this atom connects and this neuron and that the human or that the brain is a machine, no more than a machine, that consciousness is just some meta property that comes from the machine. Everything can be reduced to some kind of atom, basically. There's no nothing beyond that. Right. Everything has a physical explanation. I think probably if you surveyed the neuroscientist, most would feel this way. Um, Just a bunch of boring, stiff scientists, basically. <laughs> I mean, this, is, this itself is, would be a very interesting question to do a sociological study on the neuroscientist idea of this. But I think vastly, you know, they're atheists. At least they, maybe if they do, if they are theists, they don't say it publicly. Um, so most would hold to this materialist worldview. And I think, you know, that's part of what keeps them going in the morning, that we can explain these things, that that's part of their life mission to explain these things. But me, I do sort of believe that there are some things that are unexplainable, that are meta, that are, and perhaps consciousness cannot just be explained by the machinery of the brain, but maybe it's something beyond that. But also, it's also fair to say that it could just be in the quantum realm, you know, like maybe it's at the quantum level of physics, which itself has its own mysteries. And maybe consciousness is the physical manifestation of quantum mechanics in the brain. But that's a whole different conversation. I would say, um, I feel like deja vu right now, but it seems like, wouldn't it, I don't see a contradiction between trying to, if there, everything has an explanation on the scientific level, why that would exclude, you know, if I'm understanding correctly, you're saying like, if scientists accept that there's things we can't know, that that would imply that there's something more in the universe or there's 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 god or there's some kind of higher power like i don't see why that has why that why it can't be both 
No, I don't think there's any conflict, and I don't think yeah, I don't think it would interfere with the work of any scientists. Like, I mean, the question is still to understand how it works. Like, if you could figure out exactly 100% how the brain works, everything going on, would that make it more or less likely to have metaphysical beliefs? I mean, um, I think or, that. Yeah, I think it's. Uh, I mean. The idea has profound implications because it speaks it speaks to the idea of free will, which is another philosophical problem that has a long, long history. But if there is no free will, I mean, th that could be proof that there is no free will, that you are only a machine right. that is responding to your environment. You have no intentionality. You could even not be held uh, guilty in a crime because you're just a machine who's responding. You're programmed to respond to your environment in your own way, so you're not actually guilty of anything. In that case, there, you could even argue that there is no right and wrong, and we're just machines that are responding to our environment. Someone looked at you dirty, and then you hit them in the face, and so why should you go to jail? You know. So I do think that question does have profound implications. Um, but that, uh, yeah. I will say that I do believe, and again, this is just a belief. It has no, there's no evidence to it. But I do think that animals may be complete automatons, that we may be able to explain all of their processes the same way that someone could explain a computer, even though a single person cannot explain everything on the computer. But in theory, it was made by man, so it can all be explained. The same way maybe a mouse brain could be completely understood but a human this maybe gets to the spiritual question there's where it's some maybe the spirit or the consciousness is beyond the physical uh, so perhaps animals can be completely explained with physical materialistic processes but perhaps humans have something special. And this is a religious belief. It's not a scientific belief. Right. I mean, I guess if we can... Re basically, if everything can be explained, then there would be essentially no, no free will, like you said. And if there's no free will, um, there's no morality, and religion is based largely on morality. I think that's fair, a fair conclusion. <laughs> We're just machines at that point. But theoretic, we're just machines, but I mean, I don't, I still think that even if we are just machines, it doesn't necessarily mean there's no God. I mean, or there's no, I mean, there could, God could have just made us as machines, right? Or am I missing something? Uh, I guess it's possible. I mean, is there a God in the matrix? I don't know. <laughs> oh, in the matrix, right. Uh, I mean, because even if you have, Right. Interesting. I see what you mean. Yeah, because, yeah, is there a God in the Matrix? That's a good way of putting it. Obviously, it's much less inspirational um, to think of a God that doesn't want us to choose for ourselves to be good or to improve the world or to find God and if everything is all just... Okay, so well, let's, let's, uh, let's come back to that because... Well, let me just ask you a quick question. Um, you know, the tennis ball over the net example that I meant, mentioned in the beginning, that obviously the tennis ball doesn't have a brain. Mm. So you wouldn't accept this idea that the ball could go in either direction. It has already, 
based on how it hits the net, the speed, velocity, it's already determined which direction it will go. Hmm. I mean, that's not really a neuroscientific question, but... Yeah, I mean, I guess what comes to mind is that there are probably also some things that are sensitive to just stochasticity in the brain, the same way that there's stochasticity in... Stochasticity? Yeah, I think stochastic processes just have some variability, some flexibility built in. You know, you, you, uh, you, you drop a... Coin? You drop a coin or you drop a ball through one of those mazes and it ends up in the middle most of the time and on the sides a little bit more and it just bounces around and kind of where it ends up, you know, you can imagine a bell curve of where it ends up or the same, yeah, most, a lot of, a lot of statistical things have a distribution and there's some stochasticity, but there's some regularity and, you know, mm-hmm. certain things are going to have a wider distribution and certain things will have a more narrow distribution. And so... I think even in the brain, there's some neurons that are more regular and there's some neurons that are more irregular. They're more sensitive to inputs. So for example, there's going to be some things that are more regular, like the neurons that are involved in very important processes like breathing or some muscle tone uh, neurons, whereas other neurons may be more flexible. They may require more inputs. You know, they're more higher level neurons in the prefrontal cortex, for example, where they need a certain threshold of activity to to create a motor companion or create a decision or something like this. And so I think even within neurons, there's some flexibility, some variability, um, and that may be actually in their design that some are more sensitive to input than others. You need some to be resilient and just keep keep the top clock ticking, and then others need to be uh, flexible. Yeah, that's a fascinating idea. Uh, basically... Our brain controls everything in our, I mean, almost everything in our body. At least it controls heartbeat and it controls breathing. And that's something, those quote unquote thoughts, like keep breathing, is not, there's no variability to that, so to speak. It's not like your brain, uh, I think I'll just not breathe right now, right? It, right, it goes, it goes on subconsciously. We don't even think about it, you know? But then we have other thoughts about like, you know, we can train our mind to have, well, uh, yeah, like, I'm going to think about love, or I'm going to think about, I'm going to think about memories, and yeah, there so it's, it's a much conscious more... decision rather than a reflex. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so let me get, let's go into this. This is really interesting. So, um, I was just, I'll just use a, an example. I was trying to prepare for this episode, and, um... I was just sitting and I was trying to think of like, I was like, okay, I want to like think of, I want to have some random thought so that I can give it as an example to Nate, right? As an example of a random thought that we can have, because we have thoughts all the time. You don't know what thoughts going to pop in. Like, and I actually had this, I'm just sitting there like preparing and I had, suddenly I had a memory of being at the Franklin Institute, the scientific museum in Philadelphia and walking around in the heart. Remember this exhibit? Mm-hmm. It's like this heart where you can walk through the valves. Like children love walking through it. And, you know, we probably took some class trips there and stuff. And, like, I haven't thought about this exhibit in 
at least, you know, a really long time, as far as I know. But this was the memory, this kind of random memory I had. Um, but it's not totally random, right? Because maybe I was thinking about, like, I wanted to have some, like, cool memory to tell and not too controversial and maybe something relating to Philadelphia because you're from Philadelphia. So, like, it was random but also not random. Yeah. I mean, first of all, you were thinking about a thought, so already it's not just a random thought. Yeah. And it's a memory. It also has a memory trace. Like, it's not just coming from nowhere. It's coming from your past. So it's not... It came from, it's not that it came from nowhere, but, um, yeah, I think a lot of, a lot of people would say thoughts aren't random. There is no such random thought that we're just responding to our environment. There's, um, we're experiencing sensations and just those sensory inputs are the origin of thought. Um, I think that would be the, the materialist worldview that thoughts don't come from within, they come from without, and we're just responding to our environment. So, like, let's just stay with this for a little while. Like, obviously, but I could have, I've had millions of memories, and this was the one that I had about this heart. I could have had a memory about, you know, summer camp, about, you know, my first kiss, whatever. I happen to have this one about the, science museum and the heart exhibit mm. so like i agree that it could be material i mean why this one and not something else right mm. is that something that can be explained or is you know maybe we were actually on the field trip together and you don't remember yeah and i was there with you in the heart <laughs> right so like and it also a materialist would say like Every, I'm sitting, you know, I'm sitting in the, in the chateau and the millions of factors contribute that I have this particular memory and not another one. Is mm. that what materialists would say or? I think so. Yeah. I think that just that everything has an explanation that your all your thoughts have sensory inputs that you're responding to, you know, like some little cue tipped you off. You thought of. Maybe it was really warm in the in that heart, and it's really warm today, or you know, some some explanation of that, or that you actually uh, you heard some podcast before that had some interesting example, and you wanted to give an interesting example, so it was actually you willed it from your other experiences of listening to other podcasts, and because you wanted to make something interesting I mean because otherwise if it was completely random there would be so much garbage in those thoughts it would be something about the time you uh, a pop tart wrapper flew out of your pocket and then you uh, didn't even remember it like <laughs> right so the brain has to always choose what it remembers and there's a reason for it would you do you personally agree with that interpretation or do you think there's some sense in which it's just can't be traced that thought can you do you believe that if we had enough information about the brain that that thought could be traced or is there some sense in which it's like the tennis ball you mm. know yeah i think that i mean the ultimate dream of any neuroscientist i think would be to would be to if we could 
like sample from all like millions of neurons at the same time, know what each individual neuron is doing, how it's connected to all of its million other neurons in the brain, how they're all wired up in a network and know what each of them are doing, you know? I mean, on the, the closest thing we have to this in humans is MRI, where they say this huge area of the brain is slightly getting more blood than this other area of the brain when this uh, person watches a scary movie. You know, like that's, that's kind of where that whole field of research is right now. And, you know, so that's, that's the, 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 the cognitive science side. But then if, if that idea was taken to the extreme where not just region, but every single neuron, we could know what it was doing at every single moment and how it's connected and signaling to every other single neuron. I think that we could absolutely say, oh, Steve had this thought because of this was happening and we can see that this network of neurons was reactivated, signaling the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia. And the Philadelphia neuron got activated, the heart neuron got activated, the seventh grade Steve got activated, all these different little networks of your memory came together to form that memory. Yeah, I think, I think that's probably possible. I don't think humans will ever get there, but I do think that there is a physiological fingerprint to that memory. But I don't think humans will be able to ever actually get proof of that. And how close is neuroscience at the moment in terms of maybe a percentage where 100%, 0% is before the neuroscientific era and 100% is like what you're describing where we can trace the whole pattern, the whole uh, pathway. Hmm. I do think that there are some new techniques coming online in neuroscience that are getting closer to the neural code. Uh, I think the neural code is a term that is used to, to describe the code that the, the brain uses to signal you know, the, 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 the pattern of the activity of different neurons in the networks. I think there are, in the last 10, 10 years, there have been a lot of growths in this area, um, partially because of fluorescent reporters. We can visualize what neurons are doing. And I'm actually now working with a technique using miniature cameras with endoscopic lenses that are used like the same principle that is used for surgery where they put a you know a snake lens down your throat or something it's that same principle but it's to use a lens to look into the brain to see how the neurons are activating see the pattern of their flickering like of their activity and right now we can just with this it's 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 part of this big data science that we're in the this information age that we're living in now we can see all these different neurons flickering but we don't know what it really means we can, we can see them flickering when, uh, you know, for example, if a mouse turns left, you get these 10 neurons flickering. And if mouse turns right, you get these 10 neurons flickering and like two of them overlap. And so what are those? Is those the, are those the turning neurons? Uh, and why there's this other group that doesn't flicker if the mouse turns left or right. So then you can see all these different populations. But what, is, what does this mean in the network? Decoding this signal this is going to require, I, this will require machines. This can't be done by humans, I think. This will require the artificial intelligence and the machine learning. And if, 
if those data science collection techniques merge with the machine learning computer science field, then maybe we'll start to understand the neural code, what, what these neurons are doing. Um, so I do think that there will be some progress made in this direction in the next hundred years, but there's still so far to go in this. It's really the early stages of, of Would you say field. it's less than 10%? Can you put a percentage on it? I keep asking well, you this. What's the percentage? Zero mean complete ignorance and 100% yeah. uh, the complete understanding. Just so people can of, get a sense of how far along we are in the, in the, in the journey. Uh, in the journey towards complete materialism, is that the idea? That I guess so, yeah. If 100% is the complete materialist, machinistic, mechanistic explanation of a thought. Yeah. That's 100%. Yeah. Where are we or now? Or why the, this particular thought about the heart. Let's just keep it a little more simple. Yeah. Um, <laughs> let's say 5%. 5%, wow. Who gets the credit? Who gets the credit for a lucky thought, or better yet, for a lucky dream? For Joseph, it was clear. God gets the credit. When the Pharaoh's butler somewhat spontaneously remembered how Joseph was a master at interpreting dreams, this memory of Joseph did not have to arise. The memory just kind of appeared randomly in the mind of the king's butler. When we wake up in the middle of the night and suddenly have a creative idea, to whom do we assign the credit? Do we exclaim, thank God? Or do we exclaim, what luck? Maybe we do not thank God or the God of luck, but instead thank ourselves for going to bed at a reasonable hour and not having that second or third glass of wine. Surely a bad night's sleep would have prevented that eureka moment from ever crossing our minds. Another example might be just, you know, like Newtonian physics obviously took physics to like pretty close to 100%. Like Newton's laws of the natural world discovered everything about how the physical world works. Yeah. And before that, like no one really knew exactly why, you know, an ocean wave splashed the way it did. I mean, now that, that was all explained by Newton, these kinds of... So. Sure. But of course, you know, Einstein revolutionized all of that and threw it under the... Under the table. Well, yeah, I, Newton, I'm just speaking about the, the physical, like the kind of everyday physical world, not like astrophysics or, mm. okay. So, uh, anyway, science is always in a sense getting closer to that hundred percent, but maybe never gets there. I think that's true. Um, uh, so many more questions like, let me just ask you, this is an important question. I mean, the way you're describing it, you said at the beginning that you were not a materialist, but now you're saying that the heart could be traced, this heart memory. So mm. where does your kind of, is there a different kind of thought that might, where you would say it can't be traced? Mm. Yeah, so that's a, 
It's an interesting problem. And I mean, I think that there has to be some, some agency, some free will, some decision making that we decide. Do I want to smack this person right now or not? <laughs> so in morality question, or free will or decision questions, okay, right. Yeah. Continue. And I, yeah, I think that there has to be some, some agency there that I'm not sure how that would originate, you know? Where would that physically manifest in some neural network? I mean, of course, there's lots of areas of the brain that are shown to be involved in executive function and decision making. And you could say that free will is just the prefrontal, the highly developed prefrontal cortex of humans. Most, most neuroscientists, psychologists, atheists would just say that. I can't argue with them. It's just a, it's just a question of belief. Yeah, well, I mean... I guess you can't, because we can't trace the thought, we still have the ability to say it is a choice or it's random or it's, you know, it's not predetermined. As the science gets closer, it might, that um, free will could get uh, more legitimized or less legitimized. Mm. Um in other words, maybe somehow they could discover in the brain like these more should I smack this person or not? Maybe they could discover something that shows there's it's like a coin flip, you know? Hmm. That would be cool. Or they could say the brain said you shouldn't smack this person, but you still did. And then you're guilty. <laughs> right, but then you still did, right. So that's I see what you're saying, yeah. Um, I just wanted to quickly, you know, the the inspiration for this pod, for this uh, interview was the reading from the Torah about Joseph's dreams, and Joseph famously says to the Pharaoh that his dreams come from God, right? Mm. Uh, because the Pharaoh dreams about seven. He has dreams, you know, symbolic dreams about seven healthy cows and seven thin cows and the seven healthy cows are the seven years of prosperity and seven thin cows are the seven years of famine and um you know so dreams are basically our so this question of dreams come from god it's it's almost the same question we're asking and are dreams materialist or are dreams random Mm. and yeah i mean is there anything like i had a dream last night about i was like um i was playing (laughs) i was at i was playing guitar at a i was i was at a I, i was on stage playing guitar but i was you know the whole like this Millie Vanilli story where they were found to be lip syncing. They wasn't really their voices. Okay. I was exposed as it wasn't really me playing or singing. It was just like I was just pretending, and then then it went on to Instagram and like. I was exposed as like a fraud, and uh, this professor that I am really close that I'm hoping also to interview was like I'm not going to do your podcast now, and I was just thinking, you know, 
on one hand, this is totally random, but it also suggests what I'm maybe afraid of Instagram, like maybe being an imposter, all these different fears. So like, but this dream could have been about anything about, it didn't have to be playing guitar. It could have been me playing the bongo drums or, you know, could have been Facebook and not Instagram. So is there anything different about the way dreams, the dreaming mind works where you might say it's more, has to do more with, is it the same principles with the dreaming mind as with the conscious mind? Well, I would say first off that, yeah, dreams are not understood at all from a scientific perspective. But, um, you know, the thing that comes to mind for me when talking about dreams is that have you ever had a dream where there is a person in it that you never met? There is, yeah. there is a character that you never met. It was a new person. Somehow your mind created a completely new person that you could completely visualize in a way that you could never draw. You could never, you could never, yeah. Your mind was able to create a new person. So what does that say? I mean, maybe that's proof of some spirituality in dreams. Maybe that's proof of that person was also having a dream about you across the ocean and you never met this person, but you both just happen to pop into each other's dream because you're in the same dream multiverse level 712, you know? like. Um, so that's something that's... I'm not sure what that tells us, but I feel like there's something there. So the materialist, the materialist argument in the realm of dreams is less, less, uh, it doesn't explain where you got that person from. I mean, you create this whole person with a whole face and personality. Is that just from a collection of experiences and amalgamations that you just created this person? I don't know. It doesn't seem like it can fully explain that. So the dreaming mind, if I understand correctly, is more proof more evidence in the in neuroscience that it's not the brain is not materialist in your opinion yeah again this is my opinion as a person not as a neuroscientist yeah i mean well i know you have to uh get back to your new bride but i just had maybe one maybe two more questions and we'll wrap things up um so the brain like dreams you know we can take certain substances. We can do things to improve the way our brain works. Like you could eat certain foods and be more likely to remember your dreams. Um, let's say you can't find where your keys are and suddenly you have a thought, oh, my keys, I left them under, under the bed. Mm. And if you're hungover and sleep deprived and stressed, you're less likely to have that helpful thought, I remember where my keys are, right? Or maybe you're less likely to have a pleasant dream. So that would, how does that change your, if we can affect, we can affect what thoughts we have and what dreams we have based on how well, how we treat our brain. Does that change? How does that change your analysis, if at all? Mm. I mean, yeah, like 
the whole area of lucid dreaming is trying to bring free will back into dreaming because I guess in dream state, we're sort of taking a back seat to our mind and to the processes and we're just letting the movie play. And many people are trying to get their free will back into the dream state with that lucid dreaming uh, tricks and tips and to harvest that energy, get that free will back where you can start flying in your dream and really harness the potential of the dream state but um, your other question of what it means that just that you can change it I mean your question to my understanding is just what does it tell us about the origin of thought if thought is so sensitive to to these external factors is yeah that- and ex- factors we can change I guess with more thoughts, but yeah. I want to remember where I put my keys. I'll go for a run and I'll drink some water and I'll get a good night's sleep. And then maybe I'll remember because my brain will mm. be working at a higher level. Yeah. Well, I think that's just the ability to learn. I mean, our brain is plastic. We can uh, train our brain. We can learn new languages. It requires some work. I think the brain is a little bit lazy. Um, yeah, there's a, and I think that maybe is more proof to free will that we can, we can train our brain to work. We can say, you know, you can you can decide to do the math rather than use the calculator, and that's, you know, five times twenty seven bananas, and you know you can, you can train your brain, and I think that just says Sugar. that we. Uh, we do have some agency. We do have this free will. We can, we can uh, harness that. I'm not sure what it says about the origin of thought, though. Right. Well, I guess we have free will to decide if we have free will, maybe, which suggests that there's more likely that there is free will. <laughs> I probably missed some logical step there. Any quick tip you'd give our listeners what they can do to make their brains a little bit better? Just sleep more. <laughs> Very good. Okay, that was Nate Klett, the best neuroscientist to come out of uh, Chelnam High School. And congratulations on getting married. Thank Thanks, you for being Steve. here. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me. science may be a cutting-edge field, but, at least philosophically, it seems to be rather ancient. The questions which Nate and I debated seem to have been around for thousands of years, and to have already been posed by the likes of Descartes, Locke, Kant, and Aristotle. Again and again, it seems, our conversation returns to the question of free will. When I did a Shrift episode on the Parsha of Vayigash, back toward the end of 2020, I tried to make more sense of Joseph's fascinating remark that our dreams come from God. I interpreted this remark to mean, in some sense, that 
Whatever emerges out of the randomness is, perhaps, God, insofar as something is created from nothing. Joseph surely meant his interpretation of dreams to suggest that God literally implants dream stories in our minds. I went for a more subtle angle, arguing that the sheer randomness of what pops up cannot be traced back to any materialist source. Our thoughts, our dreams, the tennis ball hanging over the net, all of these, we might say, move freely through their own will. This free will, should it be there, might instead be referred to as luck or as God. And moreover, if the tennis ball has a choice as to which side it falls on, then surely we, as humans, have a choice as to which decision we end up making. As Nate continually pointed out, we can never really know the answer. Even neuroscience, or so it seems, will never come so far as to disprove free will and to trace the final source, should there be one, of every thought. Again and again, Nate reminded us that his belief in free will and his repudiation of determinism is just that belief, not science, not provable. In a kind of elegant coincidence, then, the question of free will or determinism, of luck or of cause, of fate or of fortune, hangs in the air just above the net. We decide one way or the other, and that is our decision, our always unverifiable decision, our choice to believe or not to believe in this traceable final source. The decision we make as to whether or not we believe in free will is, oddly enough, one which epitomizes the entire free will versus determinism debate itself. Moreover, and even more oddly, this decision of whether we believe in free will is also one which can only be arrived at through the exercise of, indeed, our own free will. Or is it? That is the question.